Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 154th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, President of Sensei Enterprises, an information technology, cybersecurity, and digital forensics firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm Jim Calloway, Director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is Arizona is the first state to approve non-lawyer ownership of law firms. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Clio. Check out Clio's Daily Matters podcast for the latest on legal in the COVID-19 era. Listen to Daily Matters at clio.com forward slash daily or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank Alert Communications for sponsoring this episode. If any law firm is looking for call, intake, or retainer services available 24-7, 365, just call 866-827-5568. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, The Black Letter Podcast, a show dedicated to making law exciting and fun with informative interviews and advice from esteemed guests. Thanks to Scorpion. Scorpion is a leading provider of marketing solutions for the legal industry. With nearly 20 years of experience serving attorneys, Scorpion can help you grow your practice. Learn more at scorpionlegal.com. Our guest today is Vice Chief Justice Ann A. Scott Timmer, who was appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court in 2012 by Governor Janice K. Brewer. Prior to her appointment to the Arizona Supreme Court, Justice Timmer was a judge on the Arizona Court of Appeals from 2000 to 2012, serving three years as chief judge. Notably, she chaired the court's Legal Services Task Force, which recently recommended removing barriers for lawyers and non-lawyers to share fees. She also chairs the court's Attorney Regulation Advisory Committee, is a member of the National Conference of Bar Examiners Board of Trustees, and has been elected as a member of the American Law Institute. Recently, she has been elected to serve on the Board of Trustees of the Appellate Judges Education Institute. Justice Timmer earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Arizona, a J.D. magna cum laude from Arizona State University, and a master's in judicial studies from Duke University Law School. Thanks for joining us today, Justice Timmer. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm delighted to be here. Justice Chimmer, you chaired the Arizona Supreme Court's Legal Services Task Force, which recommended removing barriers for lawyers and non-lawyers to share fees. How did this issue come before the task force, and when did its deliberations start? The issue came uh, before the task force in January of 2019, which was the first month the task force met. And the purpose of the task force was to examine a number of issues as directed by our then Chief Justice Scott Bales, including the uh, whether we should uh, allow lawyers and non-lawyers to share fees. So right right from the get-go, that was one of the tasks that the uh, that the task force was to to look at. Ultimately, the task force recommended in favor of removing barriers for lawyers and non-lawyers to share fees. How long did it take for the task force to make that recommendation, and were there any dissenting views? 
Well, our task force moved very quickly. We met from January of 2019 through September that year, and it culminated with a written report with 10 recommendations to the Supreme Court, which we sent to the court in October of that year. So you can see it was a very fast-paced discussion that had that happened uh, in the task force. So it took about nine or 10 months to to digest it, have speakers, have work groups, uh, have public input, uh, and it moved very quickly. We did have ended up having one dissenting view. Actually, all of us, I, I think, when we started out, thought, well, this is just crazy. We can't, we can't eliminate ER 5.4 and allow lawyers and non-lawyers to, to share fees. It's never been done that way. So a number of us came from that place, myself included. But eventually, in talking to people in different countries who have, who have allowed this for years and having presentations and really discussing it and looking at the origins for the ER and its necessity, in today's market, everyone on the commission, save one person, ultimately concluded that, that was the way to go. So we did have one dissent, but the, the vast majority agreed with it. So Justice Timmer, the recommended regulatory reforms were adopted unanimously by the court in late August. And if I can read my notes here, they became effective or they will become effective on January 1, 2021. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and I understand there is now a framework to license these new new businesses called alternative business structures, and also that the court instituted a new licensure process that will allow non-lawyers called legal paraprofessionals to begin providing limited legal services, including be, being able to go into court with clients. How do you think this, these changes will positively impact the legal profession? Well, we're hopeful that it will positively impact the legal profession in, in a number of ways. First, with what I think most lawyers are, are very interested in, and this is this alternative business structure. What we hope it will do is it provide additional capital capital to be infused in legal firms, which in turn will allow for greater technological innovations in the delivery of legal services to the public. So right now, you might put money into your law firm to, uh, let's have the latest technology, that kind of thing. But at this point, if you're in a private law firms, the at least the feedback we got, most often people aren't looking down the line 10, 20 years. They think uh, they want to have a lot of their profits taken out now and aren't really looking that far into the future. So with an infusion, though, of capital from someone who's able to invest, maybe in the long term, you can have more technology and partnering with technologists uh, with a stake is anticipated to result in more innovation than just hiring someone to put technology into an existing practice. So that's one thing. Also, we're hoping that it will allow firms to attract the best and the brightest non-lawyer partners as they also desire equity in a firm that they're putting their their time, sweat, and tears into. So this happens in the, in the Washington, D.C. market now to a limited degree. So they might allow, for example, PR people or lobbyists have equity interest in the firms, and that attracts the best and the brightest because if they know they can have a stake in the firm, that's something that, that they would like to invest in as well. Uh, also, it allow, on a smaller scale, maybe one-stop shopping to provide legal and non-legal services to a client. And it will also help, hopefully, people who right now primarily use do-it-yourself platforms to be able to get 
greater services as well. So for example, if you might have a legal Zoom or one of those who uh, sell forms and such, they have the ability then, to, if they have a lawyer there, to say, well, you're, you direct people in using the correct form. For example, you don't need a guardianship form. You maybe need a conservatorship form, that kind of thing. With the legal paraprofessionals, this was simply intended to provide more avenues for legal assistance in areas where we're just not seeing lawyers currently. So, for example, in the administrative hearings, criminal proceedings in limited jurisdiction courts that don't involve incarceration and very small dollar cases and family court matters. With the exception of family court matters, you really don't see lawyers in the other areas. And in family court, you don't see lawyers in the vast majority of cases. So it will help with certainly the clientele, the people in the community who need legal services can get them from legal paraprofessionals. But as far as lawyers go, lawyers can also hire legal paraprofessionals and expand their practices. Lawyers in the family law practice, for example, can lower their costs by deploying these people and having a greater quantity in their practice. And also, for the, just it's always worth throwing out that it will reduce the number of pro-per litigants, especially in the family law area, which is a huge benefit to the court system. Well, I asked you an awful lot of questions in one question, so thank you for that, that that extensive answer. You know, the funniest part to me was you referenced lawyers not necessarily looking 10 to 20 years down the road and wanting to take money out, but one of the very strange benefits of the pandemic has been that they've been investing in technology like never before, and they have moved themselves 10 years or more down the road because of that investment, but they were forced into it by the, by the pandemic, so that was kind of a curious mm-hmm. benefit, don't you think? <laughs> it, it has been. And, and you could see it during the pandemic, that at least in Arizona and I'm sure elsewhere, where you saw great use of like telemedicine, for example, even, mm-hmm. in, even in the legal industry of Rule 11 hearings and such done with, with that kind of uh, technology in place. Because, of course, the medical profession has gone down this road 50 or 60 years ago, allowing for these kinds of things. We saw it more in the pandemic, and I think people saw the value of being able to use technology to enhance their practices. Well, I know other states, notably Utah and California, have uh, considered similar regulatory reforms and and instead decided on a sandbox approach, a trial approach. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about their progression down the same path and why you believe they weren't willing to flatly adopt these regulatory reforms in the way that Arizona did? Well, of course, I can't speak definitively for them, but I can I can speculate a bit. And I have had discussions with the Utah folks in particular and, and, and somewhat with the California people as well. We, too, considered the sandbox approach originally. So after you got us all off the, off the diamond thinking, well, we can't possibly do this into the realm of, well, this is possible. Maybe we should do it as a sandbox approach. It does have the benefit of of dipping your toe, so to speak, in in a new regulatory regime and then withdrawing quickly if that regime is not desirable, if the water is too cold or too hot. It also has the advantage of building the regime after determining how the test cases have fared. So I'm assuming that it's a more measured approach, and I'm assuming that's why Utah and California probably went that way, and it's a reasonable way to go. We ended up rejecting the approach mostly because we feared that 
people, entities, firms wouldn't want to invest a lot of time and capital into constructing something when there was a chance that uh, we might pull a plug in a couple of years. Instead, we drew on the experiences that the UK has had in regulating entities and in our own experience, frankly, in regulation. The court regulates, we already regulate entities, fiduciary entities, for whatever reason in Arizona, we regulate defensive driving schools and the like. And so we, <laughs> we, we have some of those experiences. So instead, we just went ahead and drafted the rules that entities would have to follow and then we'll know to apply for licensure. Oddly enough, I've looked at Utah, at least in some depth, their sandbox approach. And in effect, our systems are really are not all that different from each other in both a committee still must vet the application the application still has, uh, in both systems, regulations behind them and rules and things that must be provided. And a recommendation must be made to the Supreme Court in both states who ultimately have the final say. And then in Utah, if you're in, you're in. Uh, you're grandfathered in, even if they decide the program should be sunsetted. So it's not that different in the, in, in the end, but they are two different approaches to get to the same place. Very interesting. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. The legal industry is undergoing a fundamental transformation, and the Daily Matters podcast is here to give you a competitive edge. In Daily Matters, Clio CEO Jack Newton interviews prominent legal experts to explore the new normal for law firms and how you can succeed in a work-from-home world. To listen, visit clio.com forward slash daily or subscribe to Daily Matters wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Letter Podcast demystifies complicated law and business issues by breaking them down into simple, understandable bites. Hosted by Tom Dunlap of Dunlap, Bennett & Ludwig, this show features fun and informative conversation with esteemed guests like CEOs and former AGs of the CIA. You can listen to Black Letter today on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is Arizona First State to Approve Non-Lawyer Ownership of Law Firms. Our guest today is Vice Chief Justice Ann A. Scott Timmer, who was appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court in 2012 by Governor Janice K. Brewer. Prior to her appointment to the Arizona Supreme Court, Justice Timmer was a judge on the Arizona Court of Appeals from 2000 to 2012, serving three years as chief judge. Notably, she chaired the court's Legal Services Task Force, which recently recommended removing barriers for lawyers and non-lawyers to share fees. Justice Timmer, what do you see as the strongest driver for these regulatory reforms? The strongest one has to be the widening civil justice gap. According to the, the World Justice Project, the U.S. is presently tied for 99th out of 126 countries in terms of access to and affordability of, of civil justice. And if, you, if I might, I can throw out a couple other statistics that 86% of civil legal matters reported by Americans with low incomes received no or inadequate legal help. And 76% of cases involve at least one self-represented party in those cases as well, if, they, if they're money cases, the medium judgment is only $2,441 and the average is just a bit over 5000 So these are not cases that most lawyers would, be, would consider worth their time, but they're still important to the litigants. So I, I, I think that everyone knows it anecdotally. 
that people, for the most part, aren't able to get their legal needs met in the civil arena. And that's why they're going outside of our regulatory framework of, of our legal profession. They're simply going around us through uh, looking for legal help in different arenas. So I think that was the biggest driver of, of the reforms. As you know, there's been considerable opposition to the elimination of Ethics Rule 5.4. In fact, uh, the ABA House of Delegates has had some very uh, vigorous debates on the topic. Could you outline for our listeners what the opponents of such reforms typically argue? Well, I've heard, of course, uh, many, many arguments, and I I think they all go into three categories, That at least as, as I've seen them. Most of the arguments center around concerns that elimination of of ER 5.4 will adversely affect lawyer independence. In other words, non-lawyers will be pressuring the lawyers into violating the rules of ethics, client confidentiality, and conflicts of interest. Those are the three big arenas that people are most concerned with having non-lawyers moving into partnership with lawyers. So how how would you answer those arguments of the opponents? Because I know one of the things we hear all the time is that what Arizona did is a great boon to the big four accounting firms. And obviously for you, this really is an access to justice issue, but I, I would love to hear your answer to their arguments. Oddly enough, we didn't hear one thing from the big four accounting firms or about the big four accounting firms in all of the task force work and all of the rules uh, rule agenda forums that the Supreme Court conducted in in deciding this. The only time we ever even heard about the big four was from the media, the national media, law media that would call up saying, what about the big four accounting firms? Aren't you doing, just as you said, giving them a great boon? One of our task force members who's in a large firm and has contacts with the big four contacted a, a friend there who said, we have no interest in Arizona. We're just two small potatoes. So that could be why we, did, we just didn't hear anything. Nobody cares about us. So it, it uh, was very interesting, however. So how do I answer the arguments of the opponents? Well, first of all, the, to answer how non-lawyer investors are going to pressure lawyers to violate their rules, those pressures exist now. Firms exist to profit They have, a lot of them, the big ones have CFOs that will put pressure, partners that will put pressure for for others to be profitable. So maybe take shortcuts in some of your discovery that you don't need to or try to get rid of this case. You have lenders, you have clients. Now, all of those put pressure on, on lawyers, yet somehow we manage to follow our ethical responsibilities. We have captured law firms from insurance companies, but somehow, again, they're able to competently and ethically represent their clients regardless. Risk will always exist that that pressure can, can cause lawyers to violate their ethical rules. However, what we did as well is we took our other ethical rules and tightened up in the areas that I just mentioned of, of independence, co- client confidentiality, and conflicts of interest. So those rules will be toughened up. Another thing is that in order to to allow this, we decided that ABSs will have to be regulated as an entity. Currently, the court only regulates lawyers, not entities, not law firms. But if you're going to partner with a non-lawyer, then you will be an ABS and you will have to submit yourself to regulation by the Arizona Supreme Court. 
I always wonder if the big four people are worried about um, maybe that'll be an impediment. Maybe they simply wouldn't want to submit themselves to to yet another um, set of regulators, which they would, would have to. Uh, that regulation will follow more of the traditional route that we do with lawyers. So there's an ethical code. There's consequences for a violation, including not only sanctioning the lawyers, but also pulling the plug on, on licensing of the entity and imposing a monetary fine. So there are certainly disincentives for violating any of the ethical rules or causing the lawyers to do that. I think we also shouldn't assume that non-lawyers are motivated to cause lawyers to violate their ethical rules. I mean, they, they're they there to be successful and to make a buck. And because there would be a consequence to violations, including pulling their license, it wouldn't be good for business to have that, that go on. And finally, the, we've seen that the information coming from the UK and Australia showed us that complaints against lawyers did not increase when lawyers started partnering with the non-lawyers. In other words, the non-lawyers simply did not make the lawyers more unethical. As far as the client uh, information, will that be safeguarded? Well, that goes on now because certainly law firms don't employ just lawyers. You, impo- you employ people in the mailroom. You employ people in the, uh, to be secretaries, paralegals, all kinds of things. And yet there's obligations that the lawyers have to ensure that the client information will be kept confidential. That shouldn't change with allowing non-lawyer partnership in the law firm. You know, all of your answer is, it was fascinating there, but but the most interesting part to me was that I took this question about the big four accounting firms directly out of the media reports I had read. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's the media that's focused on this. And as I say, I haven't heard it from, we didn't hear it. And you would think that, that you would have, at least the big firms in Arizona would be would be distressed and would have come forward. And we had big firm representation on our task force and they were like, didn't bring it up. It wasn't an issue. Well, I think a lot of the solo and small firm lawyers are concerned because for some of them, they do a lot of the same things that the paraprofessionals are going to get to do. But uh, I think they're already competing with lawyers and they're going to have to adjust. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to improve the system. So how do you think the practice of law will evolve in Arizona in light of these reforms, Justice Timmer? And, and how fast do you expect progress to be? Well, if I had a crystal ball, I, w- I would think that the, the practice is really going to see very little change at first. And that's mostly because, one, information doesn't get out quickly about these types of things. And and two, lawyers are slow to change anything. We had an experience a few years ago. We changed our ethical rules to allow for unbundling of services. And you would think that people would, especially the small firms and solo practitioners, would take advantage of that. But we found that they didn't. It took probably four or five years for people to start even realizing the rules had changed and what that means. And people are just slow to to do that. I think what will happen is the first people to take advantage of the new ABS rules will be law firms. I've heard already mid-sized law firms already starting to explore that. They've hired lawyers who typically advise law firms in their ethics and in their practices to start asking questions about this and what does it mean and, and, and what could we do. And so they're starting to, some, some firms at least, are starting to, to try to be more innovative. How can we take advantage of this to increase our practice? And I think what will happen is you'll have some, the first brave people that will try it in the first year or 
so. And then word will filter out if it's successful. Other firms will start thinking about joining in. If it's not successful, of course they won't. I don't know if any of the national firms like the legal zooms and such will come into Arizona. I think that's certainly distinctly possible. I know that one of those platforms is going into Utah. So perhaps people will be watching that to see if it works. If it works, people will follow. That's just how it is. I do know that one thing that I hadn't mentioned that was also a somewhat, I don't say a driver, but a secondary factor that we're very well aware of, and that is that lawyers aren't all thriving in the legal profession. And one of the, I saw that one of your sponsors is Clio, and I recall reading a survey that Clio did of about 60,000 of its clients, lawyer clients who are small and solo firms using their software, asking a number of questions about how much time they're spending billing time and, and how much they're collecting and charging, et cetera. And it's very surprising to see the results of that, that the, if I recall, the average that people are making is a little about about 105,000 a year, assuming a, a two-week vacation, and that's before paying overhead. So lawyers aren't thriving. A lot of lawyers aren't. And they've been, the solos and the smalls in particular, have been squeezed over the years with the proliferation of online forms and do-it-yourself and that kind of thing. So they've had, it's become a more competitive business. And somewhat, we thought that what defines the legal market has been the ethical rules. And ER 5.4 is one that has really restrained lawyers from competing in a number of areas that has, as I say, has simply gone around our regulatory framework. So I would think, and what I would hope, is that eventually, hopefully within the next 10 years, people will innovate more. It will give opportunities for small and solos to have more thriving practices. And eventually we could have something like the multi-tiered system that the, the medical profession has with the different types of practitioners at different levels and have more tech and such like the telemedicine with telelaw that will not only serve the public better, but also serve the, the needs of, of lawyers as well. Well, we will all see how things proceed. <laughs> Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both English and Spanish. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com forward slash LTN. Now, more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things for your firm. Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high value cases you deserve. Join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is Arizona, first state to approve non-lawyer ownership of law firms. Our guest today is Vice Chief Justice Ann A. Scott Timmer, who was appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court in 2012. 
Justice Timmer, after you had adopted these reforms, what kind of feedback did you get? Well, most of our feedback was really before we adopted it, and that's simply because the way the way Arizona does it is that we have a very active public comment period in the nine months or so before we vote on whether to adopt a rule. So most of it came beforehand. Uh, and we also, because this is such an important reform, we also affirmatively reached out to to public town town halls, public opinion polls, and lawyers as well to try to get a full full a full picture of what's needed. After we adopted it, that was just this past August, we didn't really get much. I, I don't know if people are scared of us or what, but <laughs> I've heard from from other lawyers that, that represent lawyers, that do the ethics lawyers, that they got a lot of feedback. Some people very distressed, we're changing everything, you know, cats and dogs will live together, the, you know, all that kind of thing. <laughs> and so some people are very distressed. Other people said it's about time, things have to be, have to change, and this is the way to, way to move forward in a, in a measured, contemplative way. I think most people that I've heard are simply watchful, uh, want to see how this happens, and how things will unfold. And they're well aware, of course, that we can always make changes here and there. That's the great thing about being on the court. Well, you, you commented about the District of Columbia having a set of rules, but Arizona is the first state to have these kind of rules. So what's your prediction about what the rest of the states will do about non-lawyer ownership of law firms over time? Well, I think that you're going to see more and more people looking at it. I know that a number of states are are looking at it because they've invited me to talk to their task force that, they, that they've had. So I think there's about 10 states that are actively looking at the issue. I believe that, that what they'll probably do is, let's, well, let's wait while we're talking about it. Let's wait and see how Utah and Arizona do and California if they adopt it, because that will give us a better idea if this is a good idea or a bad idea. And we can learn from their mistakes and we can take the best of what they've done and, and move forward if it's something that we would want to do. So I, I think things will change in the country, particularly if we're successful in, in these two states. Well, we certainly do thank you for joining us today, Justice Timmer, and and I suspect you will be successful. You certainly have studied all the various positions on this, and I must say, as a former president of the Virginia State Bar and having been through this issue ad infinitum um, with lawyers, I I hope that a lot of them will listen to this podcast because you do a really good job of of explaining all the positions uh, and why certain things maybe don't matter as much as we, we thought they did. But we know your time is valuable. And we're so grateful that you are with us today. Well, thank you so much for for asking me. They're important issues, and I'm happy to get the word out about it. And I will say that we even, I think I was very proud that we did get our Bar Board of Governors ultimately to vote in favor of this. So I thought, well, people were good at keeping an open mind. (laughs) They sure were. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers in Technology. Remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. 
Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.